really interesting to have that ebb and flow in this play of like, oh, we're at uh, they're at odds with each other, but then the next scene, they're all working together to either you know get the president's body inside of a box of t-shirts or like cover with the the, the secret service for long enough to get them uh, past past one one next stage in their plan. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson, and that is Jacob, and we are going to be jumping into a conversation today, the second conversation of our season, about a great Ooh. play, a really funny play, a really energetic play, really important play, and a play that a has really like, popular play. Yeah, a play that has like skyrocketed in the last couple of years. Yeah, today we're talking about a play that, that is an interesting contrast to the play from last week, which was English by Sanaz Tusi, and for lots of reasons, most of which we don't get into. We don't do a lot of comparative kind of discussions in this podcast except during themed month. But one of the ways that it is an interesting pairing for the first two episodes of the season is that English was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So this really incredibly lauded play, we're talking about like the people who are assigned, who are, I guess, elected. I don't know how the Pulitzer board is formed. That's an interesting question. But this group of people who read and see a lot of plays and then discuss their merit, they awarded this play the top playwright. Prize. This week, we're discussing the play that was the third most produced play in the country in 2023 that opened on Broadway. So we're not that this play is not excellent. It is. But we're talking about today of an incredibly popular play, a play that swept the nation's stages. And that I mean, that's an interesting kind of pairing to start the season. You have the critically acclaimed, well lauded. Uh, you know, we, we raved like last week about its structural integrity, the just elements of good playwriting that's in that play. And today, uh, this is a big comedy. This is a crowd pleaser. This is a laugh out loud kind of a play. And again, it's not that it's not excellent. They're both excellent. But they're, they come to the podcast from somewhat different worlds. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, we're so uh, if you haven't read the title yet or you uh, were uh, not paying attention in 2022 and 2023, um, today we're talking about POTUS or Behind Every Great Dumbass, What There Are Seven Women Trying to Keep Him Alive by Selena Fillinger. Um, and uh, yeah, excited to uh, jump into the conversation around that. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very energetic play, a lot of uh, just really comedic, hard hitting lines in it, and excited to kind of jump into some of the fun around the play. Yeah, POTUS, of course, if you're if you're really lost right now, POTUS is the abbreviation for President of the United States. And so POTUS, it, this is a, a political farce, sort of, a, a gender farce, sort of. But I think the key for today's conversation is that it is a farce. This is big slapstick comedy at its finest, truly. I, I, I would consider this among the best of the farces that I've read for lots of reasons. Um, 
Um, but it is big physical comedy, outrageous characters who make decisions within the bounds of their outrageous characterness. And that sort of justified, wild decision making is what tells the story. And we don't talk about a lot of farces on this podcast because they're really a live experience, right? It's sort of hard to, to talk about the the structure and the mechanics of something that is uh, designed for big comedy. We've, we've lamented often, in fact, how when we're talking about comedies on the podcast, it's like, and at the end of the conversation, we go, oh, yeah, and it's funny. <laughs> and so it's the conversation and humor, right? If you explain a joke, it's no longer funny. That's the old adage. So this will be an interesting one for us to try to talk about because of just how many theaters have done it, the chances that you have an opportunity to see it near you and for what Selena Fillinger is doing with the sort of um, the genre of farce. I think are all worthwhile inclusions on the podcast. Really excited for the conversation, but it'll be kind of an interesting one, kind of a shoot from the hip, and we'll see. I don't know exactly where this is going kind of conversation. Right, for sure. We're unscripted for a reason, and we enjoy having these unscripted conversations about theater's best scripts. So this is definitely one of those, and I'm excited for that. So yeah, we'll be talking about farce. Also, farce often has great social critique baked into it, and that is certainly true of this particular script. It has a lot to say about women and the power structures in which women function. So this is a good point right away at the start of the conversation for us to say, once again, we're approaching this uh, conversation from our own position. And uh, however we show up to that, we know that our biases are involved at coming to it as two white guys talking about this play. So right away at the top, we wanted to let you know down in the, in the description of this episode below, you can find links to other folks who are having conversations around this play who do not have the same descriptors as us. We really want to be sure to connect you with some more conversations around this play. It is a very well-produced play, as you're about to find out from Jacob's context. So lots of lots of available stuff out there. Definitely check those out as well, as well as uh, I hope the rest of our conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be some great other conversations from folks who are not like us for one reason or another, and that'll be a great place for you to get some other voices, other perspectives. We're excited to have this conversation, though. Before we get there, please think about heading on over to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, all one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Over there, you can become a supporter of the show. Patreon is how we make this show happen. We love to do it. It's part of the routine of our lives. We get to read so many awesome scripts and have conversations about them, which is just a privilege. And a lot of people don't get that. So we're very lucky for that. But to make it into a podcast in this form is not a free endeavor. And it wouldn't be possible for us to do without the support of the folks over on Patreon. If that's you, this is our moment every episode to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You make the show go. If it's not you yet, just think about it. Maybe go check the Patreon page out, see what you think. We've got different tiers and the tiers correspond to a monthly amount that you choose to give to run the show. The lowest tier, a dollar a month, $12 over the course of the year. We've had that dollar a month level for as long as we've had the Patreon page. And there's that's, that's where the most of our supporters are, are at the dollar a month level. And we're super, super thrilled, super grateful. That is super helpful. So please think about it. There's a lot of benefits over there. You know how Patreon works. There's all kinds of different things you check out over there. The, the major benefit, though, is getting sneak previews about what's coming up on the podcast 
podcast. So our great supporters have known for a while what are the first group of episodes that we're talking about. And as we prepare for a themed month, they're going to know well in advance what the themed month is going to be. All that kind of stuff. It's yours to check out. Please think about it. Patreon.com slash podcast, And we will see you over there. Yes, thank you all so much. We are deeply grateful to you all. We'll see you over on patreon.com slash podcast. And now back to the script. There we go. Hey, okay, okay. So, Selena Fillinger is a new po- uh, playwright to the podcast. Uh, she's based in Los Angeles and describes herself as a writer-performer out there. In fact, she has been staffed on a couple of different TV shows. The one that you might be most inclined to know about is that Apple Plus show, The Morning Show, which is, I think, a kind of comparable wild big comedy set in an institution. So I, and I think it's that's an interesting comparison to me for this script to come out of her body of work and to her to also be staffed on that show. Um, Selena has studied acting and playwriting at the prestigious Northwestern University in Chicago. And this will tell you a little bit about the... Um, the direction, the trajectory that her career is on. Uh, She got her first couple of commissions, professional commissions, while she was still in school studying playwriting at Northwestern University and then got her first professional production at Northlight Theater, which is just outside Chicago, uh, only six months after she graduated from studying playwriting at Northwestern University. That's huge. I mean, there are playwrights that get their degree or whatever they do, and they say, now I'm going to start trying to submit plays for professional production and go years before they get their first professional production. So uh, great on her to start her career in such a, a robust way. She's had plays developed at play Places like names you're going to recognize, Roundabout Theater, the Manhattan Theater Club, the McCarter Theater, the Williamstown Theater Festival, the Old Globe Theater, St. Louis Rep, and then, like I mentioned, Northlight. She's a Hawthornden Fellow, and she's a resident of the McCarter Sally B. Goodman Artist Retreat. She is also due to this play, which I'll talk about here in just a second, uh, she has the notable sort of distinction as one of the youngest playwrights ever to have a play produced on Broadway. This play, POTUS, which opened on Broadway, we'll talk about that in a minute, this play opened when she was 28. And she had a play on Broadway. Phenomenal. (laughs) I can't say that more loudly and energetic than that. I mean... (laughs) Not and I'm not somebody who thinks Broadway is the end all be all of anything. Believe me, I my almost everybody in my life knows more about the Tony Awards than I do. I don't pay attention to what's going on on Broadway at all. But that is enormous. I mean, what a huge achievement! She is other awards uh, as 2019 Lawrence Hatcher Award, 2019 Williamstown Theater Festivals, L. Arnold Weisbigger New Play Award. Um, she's had plays on the Kilroy's list, including this play, POTUS. The 2019 was on that list. In case you don't know about the Kilroy's list, this is an annual list of plays put out by this, what started as a, of like a playwriting collective called the Kilroy's which is uh, contemporary female or trans playwrights. Um, And so they put out this list of plays by contemporary female and trans playwrights. And and these are sort of like the best of, they're kind of reformatting what it is now is my understanding. But this is a a pretty prestigious list. Just to give you a sense of who else is on this list alongside Selena Fillinger, 
Uh, we're talking about people like Larissa Fasthorse, Martina Mayoke, Dominique Morisseau, Heidi Schreck, Jen Silverman, Jackie Sibbles-Drury, Paula Vogel, Lynn Nottage, Lauren Yee. And that was me being selective. There are many other names that you would also know, but I can't just read names for the next two minutes. <laughs> so it's a prestigious list of the playwrights in America right now, and she's on there. Like I said, POTUS uh, was the third most produced play of 2023, but it actually opened on Broadway. Again, huge achievement for her. It was in talks to be produced in 2020, so she would have been actually younger when this play was in talks to be produced. But of course, 2020 was 2020, and it did not open on Broadway in 2020 due to our wonderful friend, the COVID-19 pandemic. It did premiere on Broadway in April of 2022 at the Schubert Theater. Um, the, the cast was hugely star-studded. You're going to probably most aptly recognize Rachel Drath of SNL fame, King of Queens, Monk, 30 Rock. Look her up. You'll recognize her. Um, it ended up getting nominated for a bunch of Drama League awards. There were Tony nominations for both Rachel Dratch and uh, different another one of the actors, Julie White. And then in 2023, as I've said many times, and that was one of the most produced plays in America, it had productions in places like Berkeley Rep in California, Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, Arena Stage in D.C., Speakeasy Stage Company in Boston. Uh, just uh, this, you know, a little bit ago here in January of 2024, so like this past month, it was at the, the Winston-Salem Theater Alliance produced it. And right now, if you are in Los Angeles, you can see this play at at the Geffen Theater, in or the Geffen Playhouse, I think it's technically called, in Los Angeles. Uh, you could go get a ticket to it right now. So, I, I mean, Los Angeles is huge. Surely some of our listeners are from there. Go see this play. It's hilarious. It's awesome. You'll love it. And now, one of my favorite sub-items of the context section, where I go onto the Concord Theatricals website <laughs> and read out the impressive list of all the places producing this play this year. This has become one of my new favorite things to do. I don't know why, but this is... I mean, listen to this. I'm going to just go on forever. <laughs> Actors Studio Theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Big Idea Theater in Sacramento, California. Carlsbad Play Readers in California. Coachella Valley Rep in Coachella. Deuville Kanaki Theater in Buffalo. Sorry, I butchered that. <laughs> Emerson Stage in Boston, Massachusetts. Geffen Playhouse, already said that. Jarrett Productions in Austin, Texas. M&D Productions in North Conway, New Hampshire. Nashville Repertory Theater in Nashville, Tennessee. Northampton Community College, Pacific Repertory Theater, California, Piedmont Players Theater of Salisbury, North Carolina, Playhouse on the Square of Memphis, and on and on <laughs> and on. It's going to have another tremendous year in the life of this country. It's big. It's fun. It has something to say, and audiences love it. And so that is its its little niche. It's 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 not little. It's big presence that POTUS is carving out in America right now. Yes, indeed. So I'm just going to give us just a little bit of synopsis about the play so we can start out on a similar foot if we have not, uh, if you've not maybe seen it or read it before. I'll give you a kind of a helicopter view of the play. Um, this play is kind of set up, uh, again, sort of like a, a somewhat, somewhat uh, familiar farcical structure, a cathartic farce, if you will. Um, there's kind of the uh, four phases that I'll talk about today. You have the kind of setup, you have a, a big event that kind of throws things off, you have the chaos that falls out from the event, and then you have the resolution 
resolution, sort of, in this case, of the chaos. Um, and uh, so we'll kind of jump into that conversation. Uh, so the, the, the events of the play all happen in the White House. Um, and uh, the, the president of the White House at the time is an unnamed, non-specific male president um, who uh, we find out through the course of the play is not only somewhat inept at his job, but also unfaithful in his marriage, um, uh, uh, dangerous at times in, in terms of his uh, foreign relations and all sorts of things going wrong with his presidency that the uh, the seven women around him are trying to um, kind of uh, keep the ship of state afloat around him in various ways. And I'll get into that. Uh, but the, the events of the day are such that it's a very important day at the White House. Um, as many days, I imagine, would be the uh, female models of, models of leadership convention is happening, um, uh, which is uh, acronymed down to FML. Uh, for, for which uh, causes some hijinks and hilarity later on in the in the script. That's happening that evening. There is a nuclear non-proliferation summit that is happening, and there's like a gubernatorial uh, candidate in in for uh, endorsement. So there's lots of big things happening at the White House. And to start the day off, the president starts the day by calling his wife a a rather offensive word. Um, uh, the, the the c word is used to describe his wife's behavior. And um, that starts things running. And one by one, we meet each of the characters um, who uh, the president's actions are affecting. We meet Harriet, who is the secretary of staff. Um, she is in charge of keeping everything afloat um, and uh, goes about the work of trying to put out all the fires that the president is causing um, with all of these different areas that are, that are materializing and uh, kind of going around and coordinating a lot of the efforts. We find out uh, uh, that she... Uh, has a lot of uh, time spent in that effort with Jean, who is the press secretary. And Jean uh, also spends a lot of time putting out fires and things like that throughout the day as more and more problems arise. We also meet Stephanie, who is uh, the president's secretary, um, who is someone who is trying to kind of work up her confidence in the space uh, as the kind of door guard, uh, also the kind of runner for a lot of what Harriet is trying to put out in the world. She's also kind of taken under Harriet's wing and sort of mentored by Harriet throughout the play. We uh, next meet Chris, who is a reporter. Chris is kind of hungry for a story. Um, she's being kind of pushed out of her job by a bunch of young uh, male candidates at her paper. And she's kind of in need of a story and kind of uh, latches on to this story of the president calling his wife an offensive word, which then ripples into um, the uh, the nuclear proliferation summit uh, that uh, other people are offended that the president said this word. And so it's starting to kind of balloon and everyone's trying to get a hold of it and keep it all together. On top of it, you have, uh, Bernadette, who is the, the president's sister, who is apparently in need of a presidential pardon by virtue of her being a drug runner in many countries, um, who the president is considering giving a pardon to. They're trying to keep a lid on that. And then into all of that, you also have Dusty emerging, who uh, is a young girl from Iowa who the president apparently had an affair with and she is pregnant now. So she has arrived at the White House at the invitation of Harriet to uh, kind of figure out what going on next with all of that. Um, and in the middle of that as well, you have Margaret coming through. And Margaret uh, is uh, the president's wife. Um, she is... Uh a uh, very accomplished person in her own right, graduate of all the great universities, um, f very politically savvy, able to adapt very quickly and, and kind of cover all the bases as the president kind of blunders through the building. Um, 
Notably, uh, the president is never on stage. He is always talked to or talked about off stage. Um, and all of these characters kind of crash into each other on this day as all these fires are trying to be put out. The big event that uh, kind of collides it all is the secret gets out about a lot of things. The secret gets out all in one room. Chris has kind of been brought into this room, the reporter, to talk to Margaret um, and interview Margaret about an, uh, a big uh, effort that she has coming up, a big organization that she's leading. Um, and uh, in comes uh, a bunch of other people into the room. Chris kind of like secludes herself into a closet because throughout the play, Chris is a, a, a working mom. She is uh, pumping throughout the play. And so she finally, at this in this particular scene, recuses herself inside a closet um, and uh, everyone else comes into the room and has all the secret conversations right in front of her um, or right beyond the door of her. One by one, each new person comes in. We have uh, Dusty revealing that she is in a relationship with the president. We have Harriet trying to control that. We have Jean. We have Stephanie. We have Bernadette coming in and Bernadette shows up having been released from prison and looking for a pardon from her brother. She has drugs on her and drugs are kind of like handed to Stephanie, the secretary. Stephanie thinks they're Tums and is freaking out. She takes some of the drugs and starts to get like really loopy and start the process of being very high off of the drugs. Um, and then suddenly everyone finds out Chris is in the closet uh, recording everything. Out pops Chris. There's a big struggle that occurs. Chris's phone is tried to grab, successfully grabbed by one of the other members, I believe Jean. Um, and Chris grabs this big bust of someone, this big heavy like metal or stone head threatens to either break it or throw it at someone or hurt someone if the phone isn't returned to her. Jean throws the phone to the ground, steps on it, and so Chris throws the bust across the room. Everyone ducks as the door opens and you hear the president's voice off stage. What's going on in here? The bust flies out the door, knocks the president over the head. End of act one. Whew, there's the event. Now, next up comes the chaos. All the chaos ensues. The president is apparently dead by virtue of this bust hitting his head. Um, and uh, everyone tries to like go through the process of what are we going to do? How are we going to cover this? Can we cover this? Um, how do we cover this? A, from the point that Chris murdered him. B, from the point that there's a lot of other stuff going on. <laughs> and we got to figure out a way to kind of have these events still go off on... on um, unhitched um, uh, as well as like the kind of nuclear war that could possibly happen soon so on and on this thing goes a plot is hatched to try to get him out in, into the garden with a suicide note with drugs and things like that so they have to try to move the body through the White House through the course of the day all while Stephanie is slowly getting higher and higher um, kind of <laughs> running throughout the place at one point she like goes over to the body and starts playing with the blood so she has the president's blood on her she's running through the White House everyone's going it's all going nuts for them and uh, throughout the rest of act two uh, is spent this effort to try to get the president out of the building <laughs> to this place where they can say that he committed suicide and then kind of pass it off that way. This kind of culminates in a bathroom conversation where uh, the president is uh, kind of in this box <laughs> obscured by t-shirts um, and they're trying one more time to figure out some way to uh, cover up the fact that he is dead and the kind of final moment of of this scene is the president, uh, the president's leg, which is hanging out of the box, kicking back to life. Um, so somehow the president has survived his interaction with the bust, and uh, then they move on to the uh, the female models of leadership convention. 
much behind the stage things are happening at this convention as well as they try to get the president in such a state that he can still make his speech. Everyone kind of, Margaret goes up on stage uh, to try to cover. Um, uh, Stephanie and Dusty end up going up on stage to try to cover for uh, the, the, the gaps that are happening in the programming. And one by one, each of these characters start to confess um, how ridiculous this is, that they are having to over-function to this degree to take care of this dumbass president to uh, kind of cover for him over and over and how each of each of these um, uh, moments where they have to kind of stretch and cover and do sort of insane, absurd things to try to cover for him um, is just indicative of a bigger problem that is happening all around them. And it's sort of coming to a head with this convention and in the evening. Stephanie and Dusty eventually find their way off stage, even though the crowd wants more and more of them to kind of continue this sort of uh, uh, a dance to a, a playlist that Stephanie has been using this whole time to kind of like hype herself up to kind of bring herself towards a more like staunch leadership position. Um, and uh, eventually they all kind of find their way backstage as the president is kind of blearily, assumedly, somewhat comatosely um, trying to wrangle the crowd, which just wants more of Stephanie and Dusty to come back on stage and dance to the, the the soundtrack that they were that they were kind of whipping the crowd up with and the group of them kind of stand backstage um with the knowledge um of of just how far this has gone especially harriet kind of goes through this process of like man this is wild how far i have gone to try to make this happen um and they kind of have this moment of shared um, solidarity, but also a, a, a statement that uh, I believe Harriet makes at the very end of the play that this, there's more coming. There's a realization coming that this can't go on and we are we're ready for it. We're, we're standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, t it's time time to change this sort of thing. Um, that's kind of the end of the play. They watch from off stage to the shouts of people asking to bring Dusty and Stephanie back on stage. Um, and that that's kind of the wrap up, the resolution. Uh, it feels like, uh, it feels to me like there is more, more beyond the end of this resolution, but the resolution of the hijinks of the day is that they managed to get the president back to the convention and somehow pull off this farcical almost heist to get uh, uh, the, the, to the end of the day, one, one more, one more day longer. Yeah, there's there's so many great characters in this play. It's a, it's a huge ensemble piece. There's some excerpt from some review or some quote, something I read that talked about how this is the kind of play without any real minor characters. Uh, you know, all and I, and I thought about that as, when I read that, and I said, you know, is that. Are, are is there any character that I would think like you know their story is like a side and I I honestly couldn't come up with one. Yeah, I think the play is really balanced between a, a, a very large cast of characters who are all engaged in their own issues and then who come together. I mean, we're talking about seven different people across the course of a less than two hour show who have major things going on in their personal lives and problems to solve in the professional realm at the office, you know, at the, at the, so we've talked on this podcast, we talk a lot about negotiating between professional and personal. And this play certainly gives you that on almost, and almost every character to some degree or another in a substantial way. 
Yeah, yeah, no, each 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 of them are kind of like interlocked into each other really complicatedly. Um uh the the there's a, a relationship between Jean and Bernadette that comes out that they've had a relationship before that is kind of rekindled as Bernadette has returned. Um uh Jean and Chris have a long-standing kind of arrangement and agreement with each other as reporter and press secretary. So all of these characters, yeah, are 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 enmeshed in such interesting ways. That like when they, cause, cause they're all, especially Chris has some counter purposes to some of the group. Dusty has some counter purposes to some of the, the major group. So every time that there's like a fair bit of conflict or contention, their connection and collaboration also ends up being pulled on, which is really interesting. Really interesting to have that ebb and flow in this play of like, oh, we're at, they're at odds with each other, but then the next scene, they're all working together to either, you know, get the president's body inside of a box of t-shirts or like cover with the, the, the secret service for long enough to get them uh, past, past one, one next stage in their plan. So, so there's all sorts of like pieces of, of uh, great conflict, but also great collaboration from them. Yeah, and and I think if you're if you're looking for like the central character or or the you know if if there is one if there's a protagonist, I mean I think the obvious answer becomes Harriet, the kind of the the right hand person yeah. to the president, the chief of staff, the major problem solver, in large part just because all of the problems of the play are in some way or another hers because they all, even the personal stuff for each of the other characters, relate back to this sort of central figure of the president of the United States. I'll also say that the, per, the play begins with this character having to deal with a particularly egregious decision by the president to use the C word in description of his wife, which is terrible in and of itself, while she's in the room, which is even worse, while there are foreign dignitaries and press and such there. I mean, it's bad, bad, bad all the way around. And her fir the first problem of the play is, what are we going to do about this idiot? And Harriet is, is asked to solve that problem. The play ends when they've solved this sort of romp through the, oh my gosh, we almost killed the president, run through the White House, all this kind of farcical chase stuff. The play ends with her discovering that the president wants to replace her. <laughs> Yeah. Wants to fire her and, and hire a man to replace her in this role. And that really is what defines the sort of final beat of the play. That decision says now she says she's going to I think she kind of agrees to basically go on record and tell the story of this complete idiot of a president that she is is working for is is generally how the play ends. So in terms of first scene to last scene, that is a character that clearly moves between those two places uh in a in an obvious path yeah i agree the the kind of you you kind of get the sense from a lot of the other characters that they know the degree to which they are sacrificing <laughs> the degree to which they are covering for this president um and 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 part of it is also the there's there's the question of how much are you willing to sacrifice uh what what is the cost of staying and is is it enough to stay um, and, and for Harriet at the start of the play, I think the cost or the, 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 the hope that it could lead to something more was enough to stay. Um, by the end of the play, not only by virtue of the fact that the president wants to replace her apparently, um, but also by virtue of just the, 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 the level to which this, uh, this day, um, has gone off the rails by, vir by virtue of the president's actions, um, she has landed in, in the, in the state of, I don't, it's not worth it to stay. It's not, not only is it not worth 
worth it to say it's worth it to resist this because it is so broken that it continues to persist in this way. Um, and so, so yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the only person that kind of gives Harriet a run for her money in terms of protagonist might be Margaret. Margaret's the other one that has a lot of weight in the show um, uh, in terms of like gravity on stage when she's there, plot around uh, what's going on with her. And also, <laughs> you know, like like some big things happen to her this day. <laughs> Like not for the first time, um, uh, the her her husband's lover appears in the room. Um, the probably assumedly for the first time he's presumed dead. Um, he's brought back to life. Um, she has to jump into a bunch of speeches for him. She has to cover all over the place. Uh, for for his absence, for his uh, neglect. Um, uh, so so Margaret has quite a bit of journey in the play. Uh, as far as like ground covered and also like situations covered. Um, so, so she was the other one that I would probably offer forward as someone with, with, with a uh, large protagonist um, energy in the play. No, I, I completely agree. I, I, I think that those two characters, and I, I think you could maybe make a comparable argument for Chris. Yep, and then yep. there comes to a point where you start going down the list and you're like, like wait you a minute, it's not, it's an ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> Just a really, really solid ensemble play. And and speaking of ensemble, I think it's it's worth spending some time reflecting on one of the the things that um, Selena Filinger's doing in asking for the casting of the play. Of course, and I, I think maybe we should say this, although I think it's the more obvious uh, look at this play, a, a lot of farces throughout the history of drama are centered on male characters doing all of the active stuff, right? I mean, that's just, and that's true of the stage and all other genres too across history. It's been mostly men writing and mostly male characters. That's the unfortunate reality. We're seeing that change, of course. But this play making a really special effort to make this play a farce with women that has all of the, of the kind of things that you want from a farce. It has epic chase scenes. It has the scene where someone is hiding in a closet and accidentally overhears things that they're not supposed to. Every farce ever's got that scene in it. That's an exaggeration, of course, but you see what I mean. They've got uh, somebody who gets wildly intoxicated, right? And that happens in this play, of course. Somebody gets accidentally killed, and then later it's discovered that they were only knocked out. Boom. That appears in this play. You've got incredible misunderstandings, right? Just miscommunication, right? There's the whole plot in the first half of the play that Stephanie thinks she's getting replaced by Dusty. That Dusty's there to interview for her job, even though that's not at all what is going on. Um, you've got just so all that kind of stuff that's happening in this in this this new setting of the White House, this really prestigious setting, this setting where you expect serious seriousness and gravity. It's almost a ritualistic kind of place, right? And into that comes a play filled with bad words and, uh, you know, really kind of uh, in-your-face descriptions of sex. I mean, I'm going to swear here, the phrase rough-ass play appears... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 20 times, 30 times in the course of this play set in the White House. Right. You know, so there's a, there's so much that's going on in that level. And the other thing that's going on is this. I'm just going to read from the notes on casting. 
from the beginning of the script. American power structures are rooted in and shaped by white supremacy. Racism permeates our institutions, compounding gender and class inequity everywhere, but especially in electoral politics. This play is a critique of complicity in white patriarchy. Thus, the following requirements speak to those dynamics and must be followed. International production should analyze and reflect their casting and similar understanding, da da da, da, da. but it mostly, for our purposes in America, she says, Bernadette is white, Margaret is black, Chris is black, Jean, Harriet, Dusty, and Stephanie can be played by actors of any ethnicity, and then she goes on to sort of describe how making sure that the way that you cast those people along ethnic lines is going to change the reading of the script and such. But being intentionally multiracial, multi-ethnic, diverse, in the casting of these characters. I mean, this particular um, uh, uh, requirement, right, that if the play is being produced in America, Bernadette is white. Bernadette, of course, is the president's sister. Margaret is black. This is, of course, uh, the president is Margaret's husband. And Chris is black. Chris is the reporter character. So asking, I mean, being, being explicit and demanding up front of making sure that this play represents a larger group of people um, than than the American stage has represented a lot in the past, to be honest with you. Yeah, there's a deliberate subversion of some of the expectations of what farce is uh, has been, not necessarily what farce is expected to be, but what farce has been. Um, and and yeah, that's 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 certainly certainly done from a uh, sort of systemic position by the playwright in the in the notes, but also throughout the action of the play as well. There's lots of stuff to kind of throw into chaos the status quo. Um, and and that sort of that sort of like uh, disorientation, that sort of like punch of something up in your face is what's needed to engage um uh some tough issues sometime and i think that's the fun part or the the piece that of this play that does really well is kind of hit that under layer of farce use use comedy use um hilarity and and use expected comedy i mean the yeah. reason why i went through that list of of kind of I, tropes is not the word i want I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with the word i want i mean like established requirements of a genre. Mainstays, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like these are the things, like if you're going to have a tragedy, like something happens to a protagonist that is, there's a painful result of their own Miss, miss mistake or or bad decisions, right? That's just a requirement of the genre. Not everything that I said is a requirement of farce, but those are the things that you expect from farce. And because we as the audience see the things that we expect from this play, it meets our expectations of a farce. I think you're right that we are more, uh, we are, our, our defenses are up less for the political, the the social, the commentary, the critique, because we just open the, like when we see farce, when we see like person in a closet with a tape recorder, somebody gets knocked out on accident and everybody thinks they're dead, right? We just open the floodgates. It's like, oh, farce. Right. I know this genre. I'm safe here. I know exactly what's going to happen. And at the end, everything's going to be okay. He's not really dead. I mean, do, does anybody who encounters the show for the first time think the president's really dead? <laughs> He's just like, I, I think it's impossible to believe that if you know anything about farce. You know this trope. They all think he's dead. They're going to spend the whole play under the impression he's dead and he's just going to sort of awaken at the end of the show in a little bit of a convenient place. And and all of that are the things that sort of put put us in a place of comfortability. So that the other things of this play 
kind of they kind of slip through. It's not secret, but it's 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 it, and it's not subtle really either. But it's, it's like sucker uh, punch. It's like comes up. Sure. And yeah, 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 yeah. 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 No. It, it like it when when you're least sometimes when you're least expecting it, a line will come in and just like nail you <laughs> with with either the commentary or like a poignant moment. Poignant moments between characters too. Like there's lots of side conversations between characters that kind of hit you out of nowhere. It's like oh my gosh, I felt that. I imagine the audience for this play is not only quite loud in the comedic sense of laughing, but also the, because you're laughing because you are set up to be vocal as an audience. I imagine there's lots of kind of o's and things like that or like like uh uh sympathetic groans or maybe uh um uh camaraderic groans from the audience as these characters hit these different walls and and systemic things around them so so yeah it kind of prompts that 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 willingness to drop down the walls of the audience the fourth wall maybe um but certainly the shush quiet let's listen to this um and react in real time to to what these characters are also going through yeah, I mean, one of those, uh, I like your phrase, sucker punch, that, that kind of sneaks through. It's a joke that is repeated several times throughout the play, and it's landed for comedic effect, even while it has something, I think, pretty real to say. Um, and so it's repeated verbatim a couple of times, and then you get so, several variations on it, which is just great writing technique. Um, give give the audience a repetition verbatim and then start to change. Just really good. I won't go through all of them because that would be sort of pedantic. You can check it out for yourself. But he, the, the, the joke basically is that uh, one character after another does something particularly impressive to show off their unique problem-solving whatever, right? Whoever this character is does something really remarkable in terms of leadership or efficiency or whatever. And somebody says something to the effect of, why aren't you president? And then the the character who is told that, why aren't you president, they say something to the effect of, again, verbatim a couple of times and then it changes. That's the eternal question, isn't it? And that happens with different characters in totally different contexts throughout the play. So it's a little more than just coincidence that these characters are saying the exact same thing. The playwright wants us to catch something. It's something that's quite funny and that has a little bit of a sharp knife to it, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, I, you know, how many of the presidents that we've had in this country would we have been better off <laughs> with <laughs> someone else in their administration uh -huh. running the show? I mean, probably quite a few, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of that kind of teeing up, really paying off beautiful moments like that. One of the other ones that stands out in my mind is is the just the acronym of female models of leadership. Um, that is yeah. very well set up at the beginning with, uh, I believe it's Jean kind of saying to Harriet, you know that what FML stands for. Like if you receive it in a text um, and Harriet just doesn't get it, doesn't get it. It's like a generational gap maybe or something. Doesn't get it all the way to the very end when she has this like full realization of the level to which um, she is, she has uh, kind of seen the president take advantage of her leadership. Um, uh, and all the way at the very end, she finally puts together the pieces and says, wait a minute, this is what it stands for. Oh, isn't yeah. It? And, and they, they have all this merch, the FML yeah. merch, the female models of leadership that they spend a lot of the play running around the white house, wearing the merch. So right. I imagine they're all wearing <laughs> shirts and buttons and hats that say FML. Yeah. <laughs> so many great payoffs, so much great. Yeah. It's great sucker punches of comedy. Um, uh, the end, and also really deep meaning um, and and important comments that are made uh, in the in in the uh, the form of farce. 
Yeah, well, and and there, there's also some, I think, creative decisions that the playwright has made that are uh, n- not not just wrapped up in the domain of farce. Um, so one example is that throughout the play, there are other characters other than the seven that we've described and talked about that are in the play. There are people kind of going by. There's various aides and assistants, reporters. Um, but the sort of the the way I don't I won't read exactly what the playwright says at the beginning, but basically how that happens is that when these characters are in the scene, these other people that the characters talk to they just turn and say something to the audience and the character sort of pretends that this other person is there reacts to some imaginary thing that they say and has lines for them so this is set up a couple of times people would turn to somebody and say you go handle that no i don't have questions blah 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 they're talking to this imaginary other person in the scene And then it's paid off in really great comedic fashion several times. I'll only give you one of them because I don't want to reveal too many of the jokes if you have the chance to see or read the play. But at one point, Bernadette, who is the, you know, like Jackson has said, the kind of the the -the off-the-wall president's sister character, is in the White House, and she snaps at somebody like, hey, you cannot take pictures of me. She grabs a phone. I'm sure there's some swear words and some kind of general hostility. Don't take pictures of me, blah, 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 blah. And the other person in the scene, I can't can't forget exactly who who it is. I can't remember. They say, they're fifth graders on a tour. And that's just so great because it relies on the, 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 the jo- how the joke works there is that the playwright knows we don't know exactly who Bernadette is talking to. We make assumptions in our head. It's the White House. She's snapping at somebody for taking pictures of her. Probably our, our brain, at least my brain, immediately goes reporter. A reporter has snuck back. Right. And, and, and so actually her reaction there might even be sort of justified if a reporter or somebody is in a totally inappropriate place taking pictures of just random things in the you know, secret wing of the White House or whatever. It might be justified. But the playwright, knowing that we are making an assumption, breaks our assumption be based on a convention that she invented for the show. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's just brilliant use of and that has nothing to do with the tropes of farce. That's just theatrical imagination used well and paid off in really great gut laugh moments. Yeah, there's there's so many of those. The the, the scene with Chris and the reporter who's trying to take her her position is another great example of that 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 device used. I think you are wise to kind of like hold some of the, I feel like there's so much of this play. There's so many little bits, so many little gags, so many uh, moments to kind of zoom in on, but it's such a ride. Like it's such a like event after event after event after event. It's, 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 it's chalk full of so many great moments of comedy, of, of deep meaning, of importance, great playwriting, great tropes and things like that. I think there's, I think we're, we're rapidly approaching the end of our conversations time on it, but there's just so much more in this play that, that, you know, could zoom in on, could talk about, uh, what the, but the, the, the act of getting the chance to see it is one that I will be coveting for a long time. I hope that it comes close to me soon. Um, and I would love to have the chance to actually see it because there's so much about it being live um, that would just be so much fun. Go to the Concord Theatricals website and scroll down, <laughs> and that's where list I pull that the, list. Yeah, it's a big long it's, list. There's coming up, if, and if you're in LA, it's going on right now. As this episode comes out, if you're in LA, you can go see it, assuming it's not sold out or something crazy. So go, Geffen Playhouse, get your tickets. 
elsewhere throughout the country. I don't mean to be Los Angeles like a privilege. That's just what came across my desk. I don't know or really care that much about Los Angeles. So it, that's just the one that I, it's just the most recognizable name. There's, I'm sure it's playing elsewhere. That's all I'm really saying. <laughs> Ooh, I, think I, I think I dug out you of that. You swung the other way, certainly. So. <laughs> Check oh. it out. Go see the show. It's it's going to be all over, as you could tell from the, the names of theaters that I read aloud at the beginning. And when you do, we would love to keep chatting about this play with you on any of our social media sites. You can find us at at no script podcast on all the social medias. We also have a Gmail, no script podcast at gmail.com. I guess not all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, X, um, all of those, all of those different sites. Find us any of on any of them. We'd love to keep talking about POTUS with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation or any of our other conversations about great scripts, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes stories, plays, theater, discussions about like themes and characters and writing and that kind of stuff. I think they'll enjoy the podcast. Send them our way. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, Podbean is where we're hosted. We're on all the places you get them, YouTube, that kind of stuff. You can also like our Facebook page and a link to the new episode appears every Monday like it does the Monday that this came out and it will the next Monday when the next episode comes out in a week where we discuss another great script until then I'm Jacob that's Jackson thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast <laughs> <laughs>